Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we get to honor the work of your Son in a special way on this day. And Lord, what an awesome thing it is to consider that in heaven and on earth all the saints celebrate your Son walking out of the grave under his own power, a Trinitarian act, but under his own personal power as well. Truly, Lord, there isn't a word to describe how awesome that is. And we thank you that we have new life now because he conquered death on the third day, and we thank you that we will live forever because he conquered death on the third day. Lord, help us in this time as we consider these things. We pray for a movement of the Spirit. We pray for saints to be sanctified and sinners to be converted. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I say that the apostles were preachers of, and then I left you to fill in the blank, you might say Christ, you might say sin, repentance, the gospel, and all of these, in fact, are fine and true answers. But they were, as much as anything, preachers of the resurrection, and in fact, everything else that they preach was cast through that prism. And of course, it had to be that way, because say they preached Christ, but they didn't preach Christ risen. Well, Christ is Messiah, but what is a dead Savior but a messianic pretension? Or say they preach sin. Well, a dead Jesus means that we are left in our sins, so without the resurrection, we are simply abandoned to our rod, and if that's the case... I think that message is just cruel, just adding insult to injury since there is no remedy. Or consider repentance. Repentance is most fundamentally a change of mind about sin, a change of affections. It is the first and greatest fruit of regeneration or being born again. But if Jesus was not raised to new life, we are not regenerated. We are not raised to new life either. Or how about the gospel? Gospel is good news. But if Christ be dead, then we cannot become true worshipers through him. We are then merely relegated to being morbid clingers, and that is far from good news. But because Christ is risen, we are not morbid clingers. Although somewhat counterintuitively for the world, we do talk about death with greater frequency and comfort than any other group. And the reason for this actually warrants a little consideration of something called etymology, 
which is a, an often neglected study, and that's a shame. Etymology just deals with the origin of words, how they originate. And very often, this is uh, a process wherein a concept has a name. And that name is attached to a thing or a place. And the concept often has deep significance morally or spiritually or philosophically. But then in time, the underlying philosophical or social or sometimes religious premise gets lost and the thing or the place is all that remains. And so we go here or there and we use this or that. But we do so with at best a superficial knowledge of what's even meant by that thing or place or how it's to be used really or how it's to be understood. And sometimes as a consequence of this ignorance, we actually end up with an entirely false understanding of that thing or place. And thus we end up missing the purpose of these entirely and perhaps coming to view that thing or that place in a way that is totally antithetical to its original intention, which would be revealed if we understood what the word actually meant. And there's a litany of words of which this is the case. But I want you here on this Resurrection Sunday to consider the two terms that follow, graveyard and cemetery. Graveyard and cemetery. Now, it may appear to you on its face that these are synonyms, but I assure you they very much are not. And I'll reveal that now. We'll start here with graveyard. Prior to German becoming the fully formed language that it now is, they had a word called graben. And that just meant to dig, and it implies digging in an enclosed area or a particular plot of land. And this term is, of course, used to this day to refer to the plot of land wherein human corpses are buried. So by my estimation, the etymology of graveyard fits exactly with a postmodern secular humanist worldview such as is common to our day. For our society, death equals animate human biology becoming inanimate, and then we dig a hole, and then we shove it in the hole. Graveyard communicates that pretty well. However, cemetery, well, that's a completely different matter. Cemetery does not derive from Proto-German, but from the language of the New Testament, and this is not a coincidence. This is the case because it is a distinctly Christian term that conveys a distinctly Christian concept that is the result of a distinctly Christian claim, which is that Christ is risen. Yes, Christ is risen indeed. The root Greek term from which we derive cemetery is koimaterion, which means simply sleeping place. And sleep, of course, is a euphemism for death common to the Christian scriptures. And in fact, we encountered this just a few moments ago in our scripture readings. First Thessalonians 4.14 again, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The reason why this is a distinctly Christian term is because sleep is a temporary condition. It's not the way other people from other philosophies think through this. That's what Paul was conveying in his use of it, that it is temporary for believers. And the same is true of whomever originally coined cemetery. Christians have always understood that we're not digging and dumping when we bury our dead. Rather, they, as we, conceived of burying their lost fellow believers in a way more like something along the lines of a child burying a jar full of pocket change in the yard somewhere. They understand that at a future point, the jar is going to be removed from the ground, its value will be restored, and its essence will be redeemed. 
Oh, I can't prove this, but I suspect that whoever first coined the term cemetery might have been thinking of John 5 and Christ's words to the Pharisees there. Starting in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes." For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment." It is due to this great truth that we as Christians travel lightly through this world, which is not to say that we don't build while we're here, that we're not an industrious people. Indeed, we are. But what we build here most is built for others. We personally carry little with us, and we don't carry anything with us that can't be jettisoned at the very moment when our Lord says, come home, and we will give those things up happily. We will run away from this life like we stole something. And that is why the Germanic barbarians had their graveyards while our ancient brethren had their cemeteries. There's a stark contrast in worldviews, and that's a stark distinction in the perspective on death. And we saw this again recently in the response to the school shooting in Nashville. There was an unbelieving journalist, a an obvious God-hater who decided to use the murder of little children as an opportunity to demonstrate what was, as he saw, the futility of Christian prayer. He said something along the lines of, your prayers don't seem to be working on account of the fact that your children just got murdered. Now, in addition to this obviously being a monstrously evil thing to say, he is, of course, demonstrating a complete and total misapprehension of our faith, of like the most profound type possible. In Christianity, death isn't synonymous with failure or the displeasure of God. Would that not be most clear through Christ, who was most favored of God, and yet the Father crushed him for the sins of his people? Is it not also clear in the example of the apostles, for whom all but one was martyred? How about the martyrs through the course of the last 2,000 years who have seeded the ground for revival? Too many to name, too many to know. Many of them lost to history. While that gentleman's statement entirely misses the point, the pastor of that Nashville church, whose own little nine-year-old daughter was murdered, could not have stated the Christian position more clearly. And on this I do have a direct quote. In the aftermath of his daughter's gruesome murder, he said, quote, through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life 
once again. Uh, do not misunderstand the Christian position. That father did not want to lose his little daughter. That was, without a doubt, devastating. He felt the pain of losing her acutely, obviously. In fact, because Christians celebrate life uniquely, we feel death most acutely of all because we know what the world does not, which is that it is not natural, that we were not made for this, that we entered the world before death and death through us. But did this father despair? No, because by the power of Christ's resurrection, he made graveyards into cemeteries. And this message of Christ risen is Peter's message to the household of Cornelius, and this coincides with Resurrection Sunday by the providence of God and with just a little planning from me. Not a lot, but a little. Now, what remains from Acts 10 is a narrative, and it's a narrative containing a sermon, but a narrative nonetheless. And so generally speaking, the best way to tell the story is to start from the beginning and work through to the end, and that is how we will handle this. We're going to pick up again in Acts 10, verse 23, and we will stop to expound as it is reasonable and helpful to do so. So Acts 10, verse 23. And on the next day, he, Peter, got up and went away with them, the servants of Cornelius. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. Now I understand that it is Resurrection Sunday and Easter Sunday. But as a Protestant here, I must once more point out that the first pope was the worst pope. He should have taken a lesson from modern popes and like stepped on this guy in uh, entering his household. I have seen them receive veneration bordering on worship and indeed exceeding worship. But Peter does not do that. Evidently, Peter didn't get the memo. It's hard being the first one. You don't really have an example set for you. If he had, probably would have done better. Also, I will mention his response to their objections in the following chapter. When they find out the early church that is comprised of Jews, when they find out what has happened here, they object vociferously, don't they? The text says they took issue with him. I would think that if Peter were more abreast of the nature of his office, he would have said, I'm speaking ex-cathedra, shut up. But he didn't do that. And now that my Protestant rant is over, we'll continue in verse 27. As he, Peter, talked with him, Cornelius, he entered and found many people assembled. Now the number here is, is not known, but we do know that the number is not small, and this is a crucial fact. If this is just Cornelius, then his conversion might have been considered some sort of an aberration in the same way that it was with the Ethiopian eunuch, rather than what's actually happening here being understood, which is that Peter, who had been given the keys to the kingdom, is using them to swing wide open the doors to the Gentile. They are about to enter en masse into the kingdom of Christ. But because this involves so many besides him, and because, as we will see, their salvation is going to be validated by speaking in tongues, there can be no denying that as it was with the Jews first and then as it was with the Samaritans also, it now is with the Gentiles as well. 
Moving on in verse 28, And he, Peter, said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean, and that is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. Now to remind you of what we've discussed previously, Peter's been conditioned and prepared for this moment. There remain no apprehensions. Levitical dietary laws have been undeniably abrogated. And though he did deny that three times for good reason, because they were raised to believe that, and according to Leviticus, they understood that to be righteousness rightly, he does not here deny it for a fourth time. The Lord has brought him to the place that he needs to be. Verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now let me say here that as human beings, we have to be careful not to abide dreams that are so grand um, as to crush us when they don't come true because they're just not attainable. They're not consistent with reality. An example of this might be your favorite sports team that doesn't have a prayer winning the championship. Okay? If you reach that far, you will only be disappointed. But what Peter is experiencing, though, does prove that dreams of this kind really can come true because every preacher, I think, who's ever preached through this has struggled a little bit, at least with the Tenth Commandment and not violating it. I've preached to lots of unbelievers. This is pretty rare. They all just gather and say, we're here to listen to everything that you have to say. Okay. And Peter is up to the task. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said... And we'll stop here, because before we get into what he said, we should note that opening his mouth, that statement, is a Greek colloquial way of making clear that what comes next is very, very important. This is something that would precede any uh, significant formal address, which is why it's used here. But what I also want to make clear before we examine his sermon is that all we have here is an excerpt. This is what Luke considered to be most important. This is abridged, and he determined importance as any author would, which is to say that he is prioritizing on the basis of those statements which most support his objectives and most prove his thesis. And his objective here is to make certain that Theophilus knows that the dividing wall is a gravel pile. It's gone. It's done. And so people like Luke and Theophilus and everybody else that was on one side of it is now in the Holy of Holies, the real one, because of Christ. But clearly, all these people did not gather to hear Peter utter three sentences. Okay? And this is important because we can rightly and reasonably assume that Peter has preached all the same points that he did elsewhere, although he surely has contextualized a bit. And really, I think that's Luke's point. That's, that's what we primarily have is the contextualization the aspects of the message that have changed um, and been given to these people in particular because they are of particular importance to them. 
But the point is that all the critical elements of the gospel are present, as they have been up till now. But here is Peter's message tailored to them, picking up in verse 34. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now, what I want to point out to you here is that Peter is not suggesting to them that any of Christ's miracles nor even the fact of the resurrection should be taken on faith. You have not received a call to faith at this point in this sermon. And the reason for that is because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. This wasn't unseen. It was seen by 500 witnesses who have now become so convinced of it that they're willing to die because of it. Peter is commending to these people to simply believe their own eyes and their own ears. Verses 37 and 38 again, You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You yourselves know. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, none of these in Cornelius' household were among the 500 who saw him, which is not a small number. But they all knew that prior to his crucifixion, Jesus did things not accounted for by any other explanation than, as Peter said, God was with him. God was with him indeed. God was with him to the effect that in this life, he did what nobody else ever did. He produced a volume of miracles that were astounding. And so if he could do that in life, then it's not a leap to say that God was with him also in death and that he rescued him from it, and that through that he rescued all of us from death as well who believe in him. Faith is the mechanism whereby the facts of the gospel become affixed to the soul and efficacious for salvation. But facts are not faith. And facts don't require faith in order to be accepted. Facts are facts. They're objective realities observed in nature. And the facts here are that everybody knew that Christ manifests supernatural power as no one else ever did. And everybody knew it because they'd seen it or the effects of it. If you'd not been miraculously healed by him in his earthly ministry, you knew somebody who was, or you saw somebody being healed. That's how many people he healed. In an age as theirs was, gloriously bereft of Netflix, when somebody was rumored to be able to do what Jesus could do, you doggone better believe you walked outside to see it. And they had all seen it. And we see too, by the way, we see in a different way, but we still see. We were not there for the rain, so to speak. 
but we are here to watch the desert bloom. And so there had to be a cause for this, this mass expansion of a faith that is based upon a supernatural claim that occurred in the life and in the purview of the people who propagated it to their own destruction. There is no other religion like this, observed by and attested to by masses of people from all different backgrounds with divergent political interests who have no natural cause to come together. For example, here, austere Jews and Gentile Roman military officials, and soon the worst and most vile pagans you've ever even heard of. What do they have in common that would bind them together, that they would join in this conspiracy? And as these people were held accountable for what they saw, we are held accountable for what we see now. The effects of that which cannot be accounted for outside of Christ risen from the dead. Faith is exercised not in accepting the facts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. These things are a matter of public record and they are discoverable to anybody who is honest enough to seek them out. Faith is exercised in trusting that the facts of the gospel accomplish in and for sinners what God has promised. That by the power of his resurrection we are raised. That when he died, we died with him. That he took onto himself the body of our sin with the effect of granting us forgiveness. That's faith. Faith is the application of those facts, but it's not the facts. The call to faith is coming. And when you hear believes, that's the buzzword, you'll know that it has. But the miracles of Jesus did not require faith to accept, including his resurrection. They just required honest assessment, and that is why Peter never calls anybody to exercise faith with respect to that nor do any of the other apostles. And if this has been misrepresented to you by other preachers and other pastors, let me apologize to you on their behalf. I'm not asking you to have faith in the resurrection. It happened. Your whole calendar is based upon it. Western civilization is built upon it. It happened. Not a matter of faith. On one side of this, you can accept reality. On the other side of this, you can embrace absurdity. But at no point in this is faith a factor. None of us are here if Jesus is not raised. You cannot make a claim like this that occurred in the lifetime of the first adherence to the religion. You can come 600 years later and reinterpret everything as Muhammad did or 1,800 years later and reinterpret everything by private revelation, um, as Joseph Smith did. But you can't do this. That's why no other religion does. Because if this isn't true, it just doesn't work. Peter continues, verse 42, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him, there it is, receives forgiveness of sins. A lot's happened in that conclusion, and so I'll go through these things with you now. First, Peter is a preacher by divine mandate. The Lord has sent me here to tell you these things right now, and that's not a hard sell considering he and Cornelius had the visions that they had. Second, Jesus is sovereign over all And in the context, that's a really big deal because if Jesus is sovereign over all, who isn't? 
Caesar. And that's quite the statement to make in the hearing of Roman soldiers, and even more so, it's quite the truth to assent to if you are one of those soldiers and you've done this in public. Yesu ho curios. That could mean bad, bad consequences for you, as it would for Polycarp not that long from now. Third, Peter raises the prophets. Again, Cornelius, he's not a proselyte, but he is God-fearer. So he's sat under the, the Moses seat. He knows and understands that the Old Testament prophets spoke of a Messiah. And now he knows that this is that Messiah. And finally, there is the message of forgiveness. And this is why death has no sting and it has no victory. Forgiveness is a seminal issue. You require it. You do. You've sinned against man. Most importantly, you have sinned against God. And you may deny your own need for forgiveness, but what your mouth denies, your soul feels the weight of. We all do, outside of Christ. What you require this afternoon is to be forgiven. And because Christ was slain on your behalf, if you become one of God's children through faith and risen again, you can have it. The price of your forgiveness was Christ crucified. But here is the outcome of this sermon that Peter delivers. Verse 44 through 46, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now there is an issue of note here. And because it is consistent with what we've already learned from this book, it doesn't require a lengthy explanation, but because it's critical, it does warrant mention once more, and that pertains to the issue of speaking in tongues. This, again, cannot be ecstatic speech. It cannot be gibberish. It has to be falsifiable. It has to prove that they have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Imagine if Peter goes to the Jewish believers in the very next chapter and he says, I know that the Spirit was manifest among them because everybody started gibbering. That's not going to go over well. Now, he was able to prove to them conclusively that indeed the Spirit had visited these people, had indwelt them, they had been baptized by him, because they spoke intelligible languages that they had never studied, and what they spoke, consistent with other examples, was the gospel. They preached the gospel in other known languages, but that had not been previously known to them. But that said, the far greater and far more glorious point is that this treasure of the Holy Spirit has now been poured into Gentile clay pots, a whole lot of them. Again, this is a Gentile Pentecost. And for those who have been baptized by the Spirit comes baptism in water. Then Peter answered, verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And as another aside here, let me point out to you that this is among the clearest proof texts uh, to prove that baptism is not and cannot be requisite for salvation. The whole household of Cornelius is baptized by the Spirit before they are ever put in the water. 
Baptism is synonymous with salvation in that it is the first step of obedience. So there is no person who has genuinely been born again who would not get baptized. That does not happen. Because to become born again is to become obedient to the Lord Jesus. But it is not a requirement for salvation. All the requirements of salvation were met 2,000 years ago by Christ. A water baptism is done here for the same reason that it's done now, as a sign and symbol of identification with Christ and as a testament to the world. And what it testifies to is well articulated in that old prayer of St. Patrick, which for some reason came to my mind and which I will effectively leave you with now. This is now their confession, their testimony to the world. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, salvation is of the Lord, salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. And so it was for the household of Cornelius and on this Resurrection Sunday. I pray that it will be for you, Christian, and if you are not a Christian, I pray that it will become so for you because Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the celebration of these things. We thank you that we do not look at death in despair, but we look to death as a final deliverance from our sin, from the consequences of sin that ravish the world, from all the sorrow and all the hurt. You will heal every wound. You will wipe every tear from our eyes as you usher us in to your reward. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for stepping out of that tomb on the third day. In your name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.